Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. Good, good. Well, it's good to be with you. Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers in the house. Yeah, we're so glad just to celebrate this day with you. I hope that today is, um, you know, on Mother's, I heard, I saw a meme this week. It's like on Mother's Day, uh, we give mom the day off, and on Father's Day, we get ready to take the kids. <laughs> yeah, it's true sometimes. But uh, I got to join the club this year. Yes, that's right. My son will probably be in the second service with my wife. And uh, man, no one told me it was this good or we might have had some kids sooner. <laughs> but um, it, man, it's just been such a joy and it's been such a, a privilege. It's really a calling to get to be a father. I'm reminded of that this morning, that it's holy, that it's a high calling. It's a calling that takes us to the end of ourselves. And when done right, it takes us right back to Jesus. It is a calling that does not leave us until we leave this earth. So today, dads, it's okay if you're tired. Um, I'm tired as well. My son is finally starting to get some sleep, but uh, sleep deprivation has been a close friend these last few months. So if you are tired today, though, I I pray that you're refreshed. I pray that as today, as we encounter the Lord, that, uh, that your heart would be filled, that it would be stirred once again and you know, today, you know, sometimes it is hard to be a dad. Sometimes even just being a man in this world today, you kind of feel like you're getting chopped at the knees a lot. You kind of feel like a lot of your authority gets stripped from you and all those things. But if I can encourage you with Proverbs 24, 16, it says this, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. So dads, keep getting up. Let's just keep getting up every day because you matter. In a world that's propped up with so many ungodly men to idolize, we need the example of diligent humble masculinity that would raise their families in the way of the Lord. Amen. And I was reminded of this, that our, our, our children follow our example. Uh, just last week, I was uh, doing the middle section, just like John, Pastor John did just a moment ago. And my son was here on the front row. He's only almost five months old. But even still, he, he heard my voice and he just locked in on me. Man, that was like one of the coolest minutes, moments in ministry for me, just seeing my son on the front row, just making eye contact with me as I'm talking. And what it reminded me was that our families are always looking to our example. So dads, let's do this well. I have a book I want to recommend for you. Uh, today is not a Father's Day message. We're going to continue on in our series, but I couldn't leave this moment without encouraging you. But I want to encourage you also to pick up this book. It's really blessed my life. I know me and Pastor Mike have read this and talked about it before. It's called The Intentional Father by John Tyson. And the quick little snippet on it is we can be good fathers without being intentional fathers. Fathers that know their son's and daughter's heart. And if we fail to do that, then we've actually failed to to recognize the divine design that God has given them that they have uniqueness and they have a calling that's specific to them that as an intentional father, we pull out. So I encourage you, uh, pick that up on Amazon. It's a really quick read. It's a great read as well. But let's pray before we get into God's word. Lord, this morning, we just thank you. God, we thank you for this opportunity to just come before you, to lift up your name, to get into your word, to spend this time together. And um, God, just to enjoy your presence, Lord, it really is a blessing that it's so easy to take for granted. And so, God, we just ask 
God, that you would make yourself present in this place, that you would be enthroned in this place, that our worship today, our sacrifice to you would, would just be an incense that's rising up into your throne room this morning. So God, as we open your word, let us not be use clever words and everything else, but let us, God, just seek the words that are coming from your heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in this series right now called The Bible Verse That Changed My Life. And for me, that verse is 1 Thessalonians 2.8. And it says this, So being affectionately, affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. This verse is it's so important to me because of the way it makes me pivot my life. When my early experiences with Christianity um, was a little bit depersonalized, it looked a lot like just coming to a church on a Sunday morning. It looked a lot like maybe just going to an event. It looked really no different than showing up to a baseball game or anything else. And I remember when I was in Bible college, I read this passage. We were going through a class, and this, as I read through this, it, it just jumped out, and it, it's like it jumped into my heart. And... I found it really easy in those early days of, uh, of my Christian walk to really believe that my spiritual life was mine, and it was mine alone. And it wasn't something that was shared with others, or um, it, was, it was really just more about me and a personal relationship. And, you know, I had experiences, pockets of community. I'd been a part of prayer groups or whatever, and they deeply enriched my life, and I was eager for them. But I was unaware of the importance of sharing my life together with others. So my experiences with church before I came to really know the Lord seemed to be more about events than they were about community. But this verse has taught me that, it is, that this life, this Christian life, is much more than just sharing the gospel, which we should do, but it's also about sharing our very lives together. And I know that that's kind of a simple concept, but it hit me in a profound way. What I found was that it was, it was something that was very easy to say amen to, but it was much harder to actually live out. And so when I reflect back on much of my life, I really don't remember seeing this sentiment. I don't really remember seeing this, um, the example of this with how Paul talks about this eager and th this desire to be with people. I remember as a kid quitting baseball teams for selfish reasons. It's like, well, you weren't the starting third baseman because you were batting under 200. Get over yourself. I remember, um, I remember in some of my teenage years not being a good friend because someone didn't listen to the same music that I did or you know, they weren't wearing skinny jeans or you know, whatever it is, all the things that kind of, um, that you know, in our youth we can really kind of just lose sight of. But I also remember having things done to me that made me feel rejected, that made me feel unwanted. You see, we don't naturally default towards what Paul is describing. And unfortunately, in this life, sometimes we're both the offender and the offended. That's why this passage is so important. It's a true north that church and ministry is not just about proclamation, but it's also about community. It's about doing life together. Because I believe we all go through life and experience things that skew our perceptions of the world. And more specifically, the world that God wants most of us have to, don't have to really think very long to conjure up a bad experience in community. You know that time you extended trust and it was broken? Do you remember that moment of vulnerability that someone turned and then they weaponized it against you? 
We go through many things that make it easy for us to give up on this grander vision of community. And in a pre-Christ context, living this way, really, it's, it seems logical. But community is so important in the biblical narrative. The law was given to the Israelites, and it was, it was given to them on how to operate in community, coming out of years of oppression and slavery. God himself is both personal and interpersonal. He's the Godhead that's three in one. So it seems that the Christian life is not only about a, a personal relationship with Jesus, but there also needs to be interpersonal relationships with Jesus. Evidence shows that most believers don't believe this way. This is not how most of us approach faith. There was a study recently that came out. Um, they asked practicing Christians how they felt about faith. Was their faith private or based in community? And the study came back with some alarming results. 56% of Christians believe that their spiritual life is entirely private. The findings found that those who believe their spiritual life was completely private were less likely to see any type of progress in their faith. They were more likely to say that faith was less important to them. And they were also less likely to even have a single weekly time with the Lord. Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I'm going to quote a few times today because she just does a, a, a fantastic job on this topic, assess the situation this way. Are, Christ, are Christians victims of this post-Christian world? No. Sadly, Christians are co-conspirators. We embrace modernism's perks when they serve our own lusts and self-ambitions. We despise modernism when it crosses lines of our precious moralism. Our cold and hard hearts, our failure to love the stranger, our selfishness with our money, our time, and our home, and our privileged back turned against widows, orphans, prisoners, refugees, mean we are guilty in the face of God of withholding love and Christian witness. And even more serious is our failure to read our Bibles well to see that the creation ordinance and the moral law first found in the Old Testament is as binding to the Christian as any red letter. Our own conduct condemns our witness to the world. Those are some tough words to swallow this morning. So what are our modern threats to community? What stops us from sharing our lives with one another and our neighbors? And um, in our time, I, I, I've identified three that I feel are really prevalent to the church today. Uh, this is kind of a consolidation of many things. There's many things that we could put here. But for me, as a pastor, what I see as I look out is there's three main ones. And the first one is cancel culture. Cancel culture is a real problem that we have, church. And to clarify, I'm not talking about the type of canceling that takes place around abuse or similar situations. Those people should be canceled in that way. What I am talking about is the canceling that's due to inconvenience. You know, those people who come with that label, extra grace required, for short, EGRs, sometimes we have those in our lives. Sometimes I am that in my own life. You know, we have a low tolerance for inconvenience. It's very easy to be a fair-weather friend. I heard someone once say, if it's convenient, it's not community. I think those are some good words for us today. You see, there's a, a cultural problem of exclusion of people or other people groups from community based on their failure to meet either our expectations or our preferences. But this isn't the way of Jesus. Jesus set the example with the 12 disciples. 
You see, the, 12, the, the disciples came from all different backgrounds. They came from different socioeconomics. Some wanted to overthrow the government. Some were scamming people for the government. Some were compassionate, while some were just downright aggressive. In one story, we see that Jesus is going town to town, and he's, he's preaching of the kingdom to come. He's talking that, uh, that the, you know, the, the kingdom of the Lord is here, and so repent and believe, be baptized, all those things. And in one of the towns, they were not received. And so two of his disciples said, Lord, is this where we call down fire? That's kind of funny to think that they would actually believe they have the opportunity to call down fire. Like, all of a sudden, the, the rejection and this, this small inconvenience that they received was their right from God to just burn the whole thing to the ground just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But praise God that we don't have a God who operates in this way. We have a God who does not discriminate. We have a God who looks at the heart and not all of the things that are superficial in our lives. My biggest problem with cancel culture is that it leaves no room for repentance. Because today, if there's no room for repentance, then there's no hope for any of us. Because at the end of the day, unforgiveness is a thief. The second is a consumer mindset. And I, I truly believe that this is probably one of the biggest issues in the American church today. We live in a time where materialism is king. We have an insatiable hunger for more. And what it does is it creates this constant need for us to pursue the newest thing, you know, the next flashy thing, the next hyped up moment. You fill in the blank. This, this problem, though, is messy. It's enmeshed itself in so much of our lives that it, it's really going to take some radical measures for us to take some steps back and really begin to filter through and, and do some heart searching and be, where am I coming and bringing my consumerism to church? Because if we're honest, this is the way our culture, the culture in which we've grown up, really has trained us. What is the next thing that I can consume? What is the next product for me to have? What is the next life hack that helps me be more productive as if that's God's only will for your life? So we really need to take a step back in how we approach the entirety of our lives and be honest and even careful that we don't translate it into the church. Because you see, church is not a, a commodity to be consumed. It is a community to be experienced. It is not a product. It is a gathering of God's people. And so today, if the church is a commodity, then it is no longer a bride, but it has become a prostitute. If the church is a commodity, then it is no longer the bride of Christ, but has become prostituted to this world. So when the church is not about commitment, then we see that it becomes about consumption. And this, this is just not God's will. This produces a church that is more concerned with what can be received than what can be given. You know, where can I get the next thing from? How, can I, how will this benefit me? When I've drained this place of every resource, where can I go get another fix? When I have drained all the resources, where do we left, left to go? You see, we are in a world where we seek the line between the least of what we can give while receiving the maximum return. But God, in community, we should be both giving and receiving. And it's sad because narcissism is a normative baseline in which our culture now functions. We need to take a look and see how the culture is shaping us. 2 Timothy 4.3 says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
You see, Jesus has called us to a path of spiritual maturity, not the path of least resistance. He invites us. He says, first, taste and see that I am good, but then he leads us on paths to die to ourselves. So if we approach godly community with a consumer mindset, we will end up using people instead of valuing them as sons and daughters of God. The last obstacle I see is, is that of transience. So um, I couldn't make this three C's. We could have made it a really great alliteration here, but I just couldn't also let you believe that community was that nice and tidy either. So some of you type A people in the room are probably crawling on the inside. No, I needed three C's. Well, you got a T in the end, so get over it. So, but transience is a real problem in our church and just the church in general, American culture in general. Uh, The average American moves every five years. The average tenure at any job is four years. The average churchgoer stays at a church three years. You see, community requires us to be able to be transparent. That only happens when trust is built. So I would propose to you that frequent moves and frequent jumping of place to place to place does not allow for a depth of community. You're really setting yourself up to fail in those regards. Obviously, there's things that happen. There's jobs that, you know, fall through. There's, there's health situations. You know, you got to go move to take care of a loved one. Those are really good reasons to, to pick up and to move on. But uh, I think if you're honest, a lot of those are not what actually happens because you see trust only happens with years spent together. Deep connection with other believers are, is um, really is a, is a way that God opens doors of healing and restoration for our life. Not just in the like, hey, in, a, in an instant, a supernatural healing, like, yes, God can do that and he uses people to do that. But it's also a way for us just to commit to the transformation of ourselves. This long process of faithfulness in one direction for a long period of time. Because as we enter into these types of relationships, these deeper relationships, God is actually restoring the imprint of his image on our souls. So from experience, I found it very easy for us to have calculated transparency with one another. But it's taken years and years to be able, with with a small group of friends, just to be able to bear the entirety of my soul. To be 100% known, the dark places and the places I would love to put on plaques. So what I would encourage you is find a group of people who you can see yourself doing life with for a long, extended period of time and commit to it. Because if we live on autopilot, in, in all actuality, we will drift towards these three threats and, uh, and away from the community that God desires for us. You know, it's, and if we're honest, it's very difficult to commit to community. But theologian Ronald Rollheiser has some few words of wisdom for us. He said this, Community means staying together even when we don't like each other, aren't attracted to each other, and struggle with hopeless differences. Only when we understand and accept that this will, and, and accept this will romance, a beautiful thing in, it, in and of itself, cease being an obstacle to real community. So it's impossible for us to separate the gospel from the context of community and doing life together. So with all these things in mind, what does God really have in mind for us then? What does God want godly community to do? And I believe it does three things. It transforms us, it shows hospitality, and prepares us for the kingdom 
of God. And we will go through these three. So one is it transforms us. Community is really where we're transformed. Yes, we have moments at altars, and we have, we have these moments where God sometimes does something supernaturally. There are things that when I got saved, the Lord took right out of my life. There are other things that are, have, that are moving out of my life with a lot of heartbreaking pain and with faithful friends saying, how are you doing? How's it going? God transforms us in the midst of community What I love is that Paul said not only did he preach, but he lived life together with them. And he it wasn't that he was going and moving into a nice and tidy Christian community. He was moving into a Greek community where there was uh, worship of multiple gods. There was maybe some Jews there, but most likely there was people all new to Jesus. And as you look at your own life before Jesus, and you look at even around, maybe you have friends who've never really experienced Jesus and never been transformed, it's just messy. It's just messy. There's things that are there. You're like, that is, that is really inconvenient. And, um, you know, I don't know if I even want to deal with that today, if we're honest. But Paul said that really this thing is done when it's done together. And so when he preached, he didn't necessarily look like it did today. He preached, and yes, he preached in Jewish synagogues and that the Messiah had come and that eternal life was available, but much of his preaching existed outside of religious settings. But much of his preaching still happened in marketplaces. It happened in the public square. The Bible tells us that Paul preached to anyone who would listen. So it, wasn't, it didn't look exactly like this. It just looked like who was available and who had an ear to hear, and that was the Lord's will for that moment. So being in life, life-giving community will take commitment from us. You'll have to clarify friends and family from acquaintances. You'll have to show up for some people, and you'll have to let others down at the same time, which is so hard. But in the midst of this, God gives us growth. And for me, one of the examples that kind of came to mind as I was preparing was just even the growth of my own son. You know, these, these almost five wonderful months that we've had with him, the kid has grown so much. I mean, he's like, he's 17 pounds at four and a half months old. I mean, the kid is, is eating and he is definitely growing in a lot of ways. But what I see here, as I even look at me and his relationship It's just this idea of how the Father transforms us through this time and through this maturation. And I look at that father-son bond, but we need the love of each other. And just even as a father, I look onto my my son, and yes, I'm in community with him, and I'm watching him grow. And, you know, as he cries in the night, I'm taking care of him or giving him a bottle or spending that time with him. Or during the day, you know, it's like I'm learning all of his little needs, all the little things that are in his life, all all the things that are unique about him. But at the same time, just as I have a fatherly love for him, I need the love of others. I need the love of grandparents to come along. I need the, the love of, of other staff members who are basically like uncles and aunties to him now. I need those other people to come into those places of his life. Why? Because others can call attention to the growth that has happened. I remember bringing him in like, oh my goodness, he's so big. Look how tall he is. And I'm like, I didn't really notice because I've just been with him so much. So sometimes others call out of you, wow, man, I've really seen you growing in this area. That encourages me. Good job. And then it's also an opportunity where others can call attention to shortcomings. 
This is probably the place where we don't want to be as transparent. It's harder to let people into this to see, oh, hey, here are the parts that are still broken and messed up in me. But in, in a godly community, we're actually, you know, we're able to kind of spread ourselves open and to say, here's me. Here's me at 100% known. And, there, and, and in this place of community is where really like where, where godly transformation can start to happen. And of course, yes, this can happen on Sunday mornings. I'm sure you came with some friends or, um, you're, you know, you're, maybe you're going out to lunch with some friends after all this today, or, you know, maybe you're a part of an ALC group. If you're not, I would encourage you to do that. Yeah, ALC groups. Um, it's a great place to really, to, to know people and be known by people. And God desires that. And that when we come to these Sunday mornings, when we come to our group, when we come to whatever that godly community looks like for you, that we are bringing our whole selves. We're not just bringing our polished self. Why? Because when you keep those things in the dark, you're just going to have to address them years later. Why not do it today? Why not have the support of those around you who love you? You know, when we come before God, we really should be coming with a, an awe and a reverence of him. And the only way that we can do that is really just to be honest with ourselves. Where am I today? Where am I today? Jesus commended the sinner that came into the synagogue and repented. Not, not the religious elite that stood and just said, thank goodness I'm not like those people we need to approach these moments and believe that God is actually trying to do something in our lives, that he allows us to minister to one another and also to be ministered to. This, and the second one here that I would say is we show hospitality. I think that this is a lost art. I know some that do it really well, but this is an area where I've even been challenged, where sometimes it's like, man, maybe my home isn't nice enough to have people in it, the AC doesn't work quite as great as I would like it to. All of those things. But this, is, I think, is one of our greatest needs in this time. And by all means, you know, we need to continue to keep inviting people to gatherings like this. I think that this is still a really great front door for a lot of people. Um, but I believe that God also has more for us when it comes to community. You know, we cannot underestimate the power of hospitality. We need to regain it as an art, you know, because really our Christian life, it's not about stages and pews. It's about living rooms and couches. Our best examples of community are not on platforms, but it's around dinner tables. Rosaria Butterfield, again, called this radically ordinary hospitality. And she said this, radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Radically ordinary hospitality characterizes those who don't fuss over different worldviews represented at the dinner table. They tr the, the true hospitable aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. And we see this in the early church. We see this as their witness, that there was different things that they did. One of the things that characterized the early church was these things called love feasts. Um, great idea, bad name. But the early church was scandalous for its community and for its love for one another. These were times where the community would come into homes and they would have dinner together. They would break bread. They would have true communion with one another. 
And in these moments, they would, they would be known, they would know God, they would read the scriptures, and that they would really just do life together. When you read the book of Acts, you see this over and over and over again. And it was one of the greatest characteristics that marked the early church. Why? Because Jesus said, you will be known for your love for one another. And your love for one another will be a witness to the world. Another thing that the early church did was they created these things in their, their houses called Christ rooms. This is really cool. The, the early church, there was a bishop who, who said, you know, there's so many people who are traveling around. There's refugees that are, that are constantly being dispersed by war. He said, if possible, create in, in your home a place and a room where Christ might dwell if he finds himself at your home. And really what this was is, you know, Jesus said, he's like, or, or in, in, the, in the New Testament, it talks about um, to, to entertain the stranger, to welcome the stranger and the foreigner into your home. You never know that you might actually be being hospitable to an angel. So it comes from this and where G, also where Jesus said, you know, if you give a drink to any one of them or any one of these little ones, you have given a drink of water to me. And so the early church actually in their homes, if possible, created a space where they could welcome a neighbor in where they could welcome someone in and say, you know what, for this time that you are here with us, you are family. This room has been prayed for, it's for you. It's, we are here to take care of your needs. We want to see you flourish in all that God has for you. The early church was marked by the extending of love and grace that only came from the Father. When was the last time your heart was filled with compassion towards someone? When was the last time your heart was filled and you did actually something about it? It takes more than sharing God with people. It takes living life and godly community with him. Why? Because God himself is both personal and interpersonal. He's three in one. And there are some things that can get in the way of us opening your, our homes. I know there can be anxiety of bringing people in or man, there's just, you know, the kids just wreck the home. Or for me, it's like my dogs destroy the couch every single day. <laughs> but we're not gonna get this right every time. And today I'm not trying to stir up any type of religious anxiety or performance-driven thing that you need to do. But what I'm trying to do is stir up in your heart this reality that God wants us to extend love to others. And one of the best ways that we can do it is just through community together. And even though we don't get this right all the time, that's okay. But it, it doesn't mean that we need to stop pursuing it either. We need to ask for forgiveness from friends. You know, I, I've had to ask friends for forgiveness for ghosting their text messages or for forgiveness of being so busy that I just really wasn't present through seasons of their life. But it's important to keep coming back to it because God says, we're two or more and gathered in my name. There I am as well. So gone are the days where we simply just invite people to church to hear a good sermon. People will always hear messages about the gospel, but I believe now are the days where people will first be exposed to Jesus around dinner tables and meeting places and places that are not church buildings. Lastly, we need to prepare for the kingdom to come. The word of God tells us that Jesus is coming back. 
Jesus' warning to us in the Gospels was not to let the oil run out of our lamps. Don't allow the light that was ignited by God at the moment of your salvation to burn out. As the author of Hebrews says, stoke one another's fires. We need one another because the reality is, is that Jesus has saved us into a family today. He saved us into a family that does community and a community that teaches us how to live for eternity. Because in heaven, we will be serving one another. Revelation tells us that at the, at the feast of the bridegroom is where we will all be together at a table. At that table will be loved ones that were lost. We will get to dine with them again if they died in Christ. We will get to sit at the same table as Paul and, and Jesus and the prophets and, and all the other people as well. People who were never named in the Bible. We will get to share meals with them but it also says that you and I and them will be serving one another. So we, we need to get this right on the side of heaven. Why? Because this is what's coming in the life to come as well. Jesus said that the, the greatest among you is the least. I didn't, and he says that I didn't come to be served, but to serve. So why would we believe that we're gonna do anything else on the other side of eternity? We will be serving one another. And so this is what Paul wanted to warn the Thessalonians about, because many said, you've missed it. Jesus isn't coming back. He's not coming back. So why are you doing all this? In the last days, there'll be false prophets and teachers that will try to uh, stir our hearts away from God. But we need to prepare now for the kingdom by learning to live in community. Why? Because it's impossible to separate the gospel from the context of doing community and life together. And I want to end with this. This is kind of the way I've paraphrased 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Of our own free determination, we continue to give ourselves to you over and over again, giving not just at a human level, but at a soul level from the entirety of ourselves, sharing our lives open-ended. No one forced us to. We had no obligation, but we were joyed to do life with you. I hope that that's the sentiment that we can take away today, that it is a joy to do life together amidst all the struggle, all the challenges. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you today for all that you're doing. God, for calling us deeper, for calling us even deeper to one another. So God, we just give you it all today. God, we give you our indifference. We give you uh, all of our hangups. Lord, we just come, just to come in alignment to say, Lord, your will is for community, to commit to one another, to do life together, Lord, and not just to come and to consume, but to both give and to receive. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for all the things that you've done for us. So just let us follow your great example today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.